Hi, everyone. It's Adam White, host of Unprecedental. Thanks for joining us again. You're about to hear my conversation with Professor Alan Morrison. Professor Morrison teaches constitutional law at George Washington University. and He's one of the leading Supreme Court advocates of his generation. He's really an incredible lawyer. And the discussion we have about the Supreme Court and Supreme Court litigation, I thought it was interesting. I hope you do, too. Over the course of the discussion, we focused on his litigation that's pending in the lower courts right now involving what's called the non-delegation doctrine. That is, uh, the ways in which Congress delegates power to agencies and the limits, if any, that the Constitution puts on that and the court's power or lack of power to really enforce that constitutional line. Allen's litigating this in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit. When we recorded our conversation in mid-January, the case was still pending. But in the meantime, a few weeks ago, the Federal Circuit issued its decision. Spoiler alert, it ruled against Professor Morrison and his clients. The court held that their non-delegation claims were barred by the Supreme Court's 1970s decision in a case called Algonquin. I don't know what's going to happen next. We don't know whether Professor Morrison will choose to seek rehearing en banc, that is, ask the Federal Circuit to rehear the case with all of its judges, or if he'll go straight to the Supreme Court. It'll be very interesting to watch Professor Morrison and his colleagues' next steps. I'd encourage you to take a look at the Federal Circuit's decision. You can just Google the case name, American Institute for International Steel versus United States uh, and Federal Circuit, and it should pop up. It's an interesting decision, and it's worth reading. I hope the conversation that I had with Professor Morrison is, is interesting and worth listening to. In any event, thanks again for joining us. Welcome back to Unprecedential, an AEI podcast on American constitutionalism. I'm your host, Adam White. We call Congress the first branch of our government because it's the subject of Article I of the Constitution. And Article I begins with these words. All legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States. A few paragraphs later, in Article II, the Constitution adds, the executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States. Congress legislates and the president executes. It seems simple, but from our republic's earliest days, we have struggled with how to draw the line between legislative power and executive power, and with the question of what role the Supreme Court should play in preventing Congress from delegating its legislative power to the executive. More than two centuries later, most of our government's day-to-day lawmaking happens not in the legislative branch, but in executive agencies and independent regulatory commissions. And in the Supreme Court, there seems to be significant interest in reconsidering what we call the non-delegation doctrine. That is, the rule by which a court determines whether a grant of power by Congress to an agency is so broad that it actually constitutes an unconstitutional delegation of legislative power. This is the subject that AEI's own Peter Wallison examined recently in a book called Judicial Fortitude. The court recently heard one case along those lines last year in United States versus Gundy. Perhaps soon it will hear another involving steel tariffs. Joining us today is one of the lead lawyers in that case. Alan Morrison is the Lerner Family Associate Dean for Public Interest and Public Service at George Washington University's Law School. And he's also one of the leading Supreme Court litigators of the last several decades. He's argued 20 cases in the Supreme Court, many involving fundamental issues of constitutional structure. Before joining GW, he worked for the Public Citizen Litigation Group, which he co-founded with Ralph Nader in 1972. Alan, 
Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Adam. And as always, we're joined by my colleague, Tal Fortkang. Hi, Tal. Hi, Adam. Now, Alan, let's begin with that last part of your bio. You co-founded the Public Citizen Litigation Group, which will not be confused with a right-wing uh, litigation I hope group. hope not. <laughs> we'll be discussing non-delegation, and, and these days non-delegation is seen as more of a conservative issue. You're not a, a conservative, I, I think it's fair to say. It's fair to say. What brings you to this issue, or what brought you to this issue? Well, this is not the first time I've tried to deal with the issue of excessive delegation, and I'm concerned about two phenomena which are sort of mutually reinforcing. One is Congress refusing to make hard choices, abdicating its responsibilities to uh, the courts and to the executive branch. The Gundy case, which you mentioned a, a moment ago in our conversation here, was just that case. Congress couldn't decide whether to make a particular notification of sexual offenders retroactive to apply to offenders who had been convicted before the effective date of the federal law or not retroactive. One house said one thing, the other house said the other, so they punted. They said, Mr. Attorney General, you decide. And the question in that case was whether that kind of delegation was excessive. The court construed, the majority of the court construed the statute in a way to avoid that question. But that question is very much in front. So that's a kind of a abdication responsibility. Yeah. The second concern that we have is excessive power in the hands of the president. Separation of powers is supposed to prevent either aggrandizement by one branch or accretion to another branch. And delegation involves kind of the opposite. It involves the Congress giving up authority to the president. And I get very worried about that. Uh, and, and I know that, that Peter Wallace and others do too, not only to the president, but in some cases, administrative agencies. And we've seen in the last three years, but not exclusively in the last three years, enormous power given to the president and the courts being reluctant to, to rein that in through the uh, process of reviewing administrative actions. Mm -hmm. So when the steel tariffs were announced, I read about it and I said to one of my colleagues who teaches trade, I said to him, Steve, tell me what the statute is. They can't really mean to have done that, can they? So he sent me to section 232 of, of the Trade Expansion Act of, of 1962. And sure enough, there it was, a statute which essentially has given the power to the president to do anything he wants with regard to curbing imports. And that's what our case is about. Now, we'll get back to that case in just a moment, but let's pick up with something you said a moment ago about Congress abdicating its powers. I mean, James Madison, the whole premise of his approach to constitutionalism was that ambition would counteract ambition and that each branch would push its boundaries. And, and we needed the other two branches then to push back. And of the three branches of government, the framers were most worried about Congress overstepping its bounds, stretching its boundaries, encroaching upon the turf of the other branches. How did we wind up in a situation where actually Congress is not too ambitious, but not ambitious enough? Well, I think Congress is plenty ambitious, but, but the ambition is striving toward re-election, yeah. not toward gaining power for the Congress. And I think that's the problem. Indeed, we can see this in the impeachment proceedings going on now. The Senate is basically seeing itself as the protector of the president because of his political alignment with them. It's not seen as protecting senatorial prerogatives, not thinking down the road, well, what's going to happen if the other party's in charge and we, we get a similar kind of situation, but with the political parties reversed. And so the ambition is not 
ambition in the sense of power versus the president or versus the court, but it's political ambition and getting reelected. And, and that's a very serious problem. That's why I think there's been this abdication, not wanting to take responsibility, passing it off on the president or somebody else. Yeah. And just so our listeners know, we're taping this in late January. The episode will come out in a few weeks and maybe by then the impeachment trial will be over. Maybe not. Who knows? I hope so. But, you know, we hearken back to the the founding era and what they expected. The fact is the the Supreme Court's been grappling with non-delegation almost since the beginning, right? When I teach administrative law, the first non-delegation case I teach is called the cargo of the brig Aurora, which I suppose you probably know well because it was another tariff case. Yeah. But in sort of to race through 200 years of history, initially the Supreme Court is grappling with questions about whether a president can be given power to change policy based on factual determinations or value-laden factual determinations. I think in the brig Aurora, Congress told the president, keep tariffs at this high level until you determine that either France or England is no longer violating our neutral commerce, at which point you can flip a switch and and bring tariffs down. And the court in that case said that's not a delegation of legislative power. It's just giving the president the the, the power to find facts that have policy consequences. So the fact-finding part is pretty easy. And I'm comfortable with that when, for example, the Congress tells the president be sure that the costs of production are equal yeah. in, in the two countries, or the found that, that the war is over in one, in one place. Those are easy questions in yeah. my mind and don't present any serious delegation problem. They, they, uh, they can be complicated though, yes, right? So even something like neutral commerce. I mean, who's to, there's some real value judgments to be made well, there. Well, there are at least some problems of difficulty in, in Congress getting the information Remember, when those cases arose, Congress was not in session all the time, right. and, and it made it much more difficult to do so. That's a good point. I mean, the, the hypothetical I give my, my students is the speed limit is the law, right? We all agree that the speed limit is the law. Congress has delegated to the Interior Department the power to set the speed limit mm-hmm. in every national park in the country. Now, imagine if Congress had to actually decide 35, 45, or 60 for every national park and every literal twist and turn in the road, couldn't get its job done. Is that a fact? No, I don't think it's a fact, but it's a kind of a judgment that I think we all would accept as well within the power. And nobody would want to say that only the Congress can set those speed limits. The question is how much is too much and how much policy there has to be involved. And that sort of becomes... We can call it non-delegation doctrine 2.0. You get you know decades or almost a century into the into the republic's history, and the court starts making distinctions between the big policy judgments and the sort of the smaller, just discretionary judgments. Another actually another tariff case, right? Field v. Clark. I'm from the Midwest, and so I think of it as the Marshall Fields yes. case. But another where the court says that's the line we'll draw is the big policy decisions versus the smaller ones. Yes, but they allowed the Congress to delegate it in that yes. case because. The Congress in the statute said it only applies to certain countries, yeah. and it only applies if those countries are exporting five specific products. Right. And if you find that those countries are now imposing unreasonable tariffs or undue burdens on our exports, yeah. then you can do one and only one thing. You can remove the preferences which you now give. Right. So my view is that's a, not a hard case because it's clearly defined in the steel case, which we'll talk about in a minute. Yeah. We set up a matrix that most of these statutes, I think indeed probably all of them, have two parts to them. They have what I refer to as the trigger. Mm -hmm. That is, what is the fact-finding 
unequal production or they remove the tariff before it brings into play the remedies and what can you do. And in most of these statutes, either, in many cases, both, the front end, the trigger, is narrowly confined to a, what would I think all of us would agree is pretty much a factual determination. Yeah. That is, of course, costs of production are not fact as in what time the sun comes up in the morning. On the other hand, they can be reasonably determined and are, among other things, things that change all the time so that if you didn't, if you made Congress do it, it would have to be in session yeah. all the time dealing with these things. And the second, they tell the president what he can do. So in, in, in that case, the Marshall Field case, the president had an off on switch. Yeah. Do. In other cases, such as Hampton, the president could raise the tariffs, existing tariffs only, but only by up to 50%. 50% could be a lot. On the other hand, Congress has made the choice and, and the president is clearly confined right. uh, within the nose. Now, if there are law students listening, I want you already can see why Alan Morrison is one of the greatest lawyers of his time. Just in discussing the issues, he's already making sure to frame the cases to make clear where we're headed with the national security steel tariffs case. One, one last step along the way, after the field case, you get into the New Deal era. And that's where in cases like J.W. Hampton, and then in the two cases where the court actually struck down statutes, Schechter Poultry and Panama Refining, the court declares the intelligible principle standard. Basically, as long as Congress includes in its statute an intelligible principle that can guide and limit the agency or the president's discretion, that's enough. I sometimes compare it to the stake in the backyard that you tie the dog to. The dog might be able to run pretty far and can run around in a pretty big circle, but there is at least some stake in the ground that they have to stay anchored to. Well, the court has used the term boundaries. Yeah. Unfortunately, the intelligible principle does not always clearly require that there be boundaries and they yeah. be identified as, as boundaries. And so the real problem is how much is too much. And the term intelligible principles, as Justice Gorsuch indicated in his dissent in the Gundy case, is not so much a test as a conclusion. And in Hampton, which is the case pre-New Deal 1927, that announced the intelligible principle, that was the statute in, in which they had to find unequal costs of production and a 50% limitation. To say that there's an intelligible principle there, you've got to take the context of that statute into account, but the court hasn't always done it. It's just simply said, we're not going to decide too much is too much. And I think part of it is because when you think about separation of powers, the framers were concerned about one part of the government taking too much power for itself. They were less concerned about abdication, hence yeah. the ambition term. Abdication and ambition don't generally found in the same sentence. Right. And so, well, so just to kind of summarize, and, and the intelligible principle standard is still the law. And that's what the court applied in cases like Whitman, which had to do the Clean Air Act and so on. But just to kind of walk back through the steps, the intelligible principle standard is the modern standard for the non-delegation doctrine. The non-delegation doctrine is sort of an inference the courts drew from the Constitution that by vesting Congress with legislative powers and the president with executive power, there must be some line there. And the non-delegation doctrine is the, is the line they inferred. All those steps are sort of contested along the way, but that's where we are when today, or not today, but in recent years, you filed a federal lawsuit challenging the statute for the national security tariffs, and in this case, that were applied to steel. Why don't you tell us about that case? Sure. The statute has as its trigger a finding by the president upon the recommendation of the Secretary of Commerce 
that imports of a particular product, steel in this case, may threaten the national security. As we know, national security is a very broad term. But in this case, the Congress explained that it did not intend to limit national security to foreign affairs and military needs, but that it included any impact on our economy or, for that matter, any segment or industry in the economy, which I translate mean anything. Everything is national security. Indeed, in the case when we were in the Court of International Trade, the first lower court that we're in, one of the judges asked the government, could the president ban the importation of peanut butter under this statute? And the government refused to answer that question, but said whatever it did, the court couldn't review it. We'll get to that judicial review aspect in a moment, I hope. Yeah, yeah. So that's the front end, completely open-ended. When I argued the case recently in the federal circuit, the presiding judge asked me, how about tulips? Same thing. So very, very open-ended at the beginning. But the remedies is perhaps even more open-ended. The president can do anything he he may, in the words of the statute, adjust imports to eliminate the threat to national security. And he can do that by imposing tariffs, quotas, licensing fees, embargoes, or any combination of them. Moreover, there's no limit on how much he can raise tariffs. He can raise tariffs on products like steel, which did not previously have tariffs imposed on them. He can he does not have to impose the same tariff on every country. And in fact, at one point, he doubled the tariffs on imports from Turkey with no apparent reason, no reason needed to be given, certainly none related to the why Turkey was singled out, later revoked that. Some countries have quotas, some countries have nothing, all up to the president, and he can do it anytime he wants with no limits on how much or how little he can do on the tariffs. Second, Steel is not a single product. In fact, under the Commerce Department tariff rules, there are, I think, 177 different classifications of steel products, which are used for many different things. And there are many different kinds, different levels of quality, different sizes, shapes. Some go directly into manufacturing, other used for specialized purposes. President imposed the same 25% tariff on every one of those products, even though there's no question that some of them are made fully up to U.S. needs. Some of them are made only outside the United States, and some of them have mixed uses. Nobody treats, nobody in the business certainly treats them all the same. Moreover, he's not required to take into account, but he may, but need not, the obvious adverse consequences of what's going to happen when you start imposing tariffs. The most significant of this is, well, two really. One is it raises the price of the product to consumers or to manufacturers, depending on how flexible the market is and, and how much can be passed on. And second, it results in inevitable retaliation by other countries. We've seen this most clearly with agriculture products and the impact on farmers As a result of this, the president has now spent, I assume legally, but I can't figure out a way to challenge it, close to $30 billion from money for the agriculture department to be used or other parts of the budget to be used to help the farmers who were drastically hit by these tariffs. And he can do all this in any way he wants with no guidance from Congress at all, despite the obvious consequences of all of these different courses of of conduct. And we say that's just too much, that there is no boundary, that's the word from the Supreme Court, on either the trigger at the front end or the remedies at the back end. Now, 
the peanut butter hypothetical, the tulips hypothetical, setting those aside for a moment, steel is traditionally tied to United States national defense, right? A half century ago, President Truman famously tried unsuccessfully to seize control of the steel industry, domestic steel industry, because it was of such strategic value. Even if in the short term tariffs raise the price of steel, I suppose the theory is that in the long term, that price increase will incentivize the growth of a domestic steel industry that would be a a resource for the federal government going forward, right? Certainly, that's part of the theory. And if you look at the statute, the statute requires that the Secretary of Commerce, in the course of making his recommendations, has to consult with the Secretary of Defense. That was actually my next question about the the commerce role. Yeah. Yeah. So the commerce makes this investigation. In this case, the Secretary of Defense wrote a letter saying, we got all the steel we need. Interesting. We're not concerned about that. We are concerned about some of these practices where countries are doing bad things to us. They're retaliating. They're stealing our trade secrets. This power under this section 232 is in addition to the, t- the two kind of laws that apply in those cases. One is called anti-dumping and other is countervailing duties. Basically, they enable us, our government, to impose tariffs and other penalties on foreign countries who are doing unreasonable things to our, our imports there. Yeah. This, this power under section 232 is in addition to all of that power. So in this case, obviously, steel restrictions could not be justified on the grounds of national defense because the Secretary of Defense said no. But second, more importantly, the statute is very clear that it's not only limited to what we traditionally think of national defense or national security. But you are right that the theory is that they can, that this will encourage the expansion of the domestic industry. Of course, we all know that businesses plan for the long run. Yeah. And these tariffs, I do not think, are in the long run. So a sensible business could that say, well, this is forever and we can count on, on this and therefore we'll make major in, investments. So that's a, a flaw in the, in the theory, but I don't think it goes to the delegation question itself. In addition to just look, focusing on, on steel and whether that's a plausible justification for national security, there is just the broader question of national security, right? That whatever you and I think of the president's approach, of course, the secretary of defense's position makes what I'm about to say much, much less tenable. But in general, the courts leave a lot of space for presidents on questions of national security. Not always. They didn't famously in the Youngstown Steel case that I referred to earlier, the Truman case. But in general, courts seem wary and Congress often seems wary of micromanaging or even managing the president on national security issues. The tariff case that you have reminds me in some ways of the longstanding program, what's called CFIUS, the Committee of Foreign Investment in the United States, where the president, working with the Council of of Domestic and, and, and National Security Agencies, has broad power to just veto foreign investment in the United States if it's seen as posing a national security threat. That's just one, I think, of several examples where Congress has really delegated broad, broad power to the president Precisely because the president is the commander-in-chief of our armed forces, he has the executive power. He's seen, as the Supreme Court said in one case, as the sole organ in foreign affairs. Here, I'm muddling up a lot of doctrines, but the basic point is that American constitutional law and constitutional practice often leaves the president with immense discretion. And when he, even when he makes decisions that you or I might say, that's not plausible national security, the courts are very wary, it seems, of treading on that discretion. Well, I want to begin with the fact that these tariffs and this statute were enacted 
under Congress's express authority, first to regulate foreign commerce and to second in the Constitution in Article One to impose duties and other tariffs. There is no question that the Congress used those powers, nor is there any question that the president has no inherent authority to impose these tariffs on his own without a statutory delegation. Yeah. So to the extent that they're relying on the president's inherent powers, we don't think that that, that applies. Yeah. Second, with regard to the various statutes you talked about, there may be delegation issues un- under them. I haven't examined the particular statute that, that you had at, at, issue, at issue there, Surely statutes that deal with export controls over potential national security measures, products and so forth that might enable uh, foreign governments to get our trade military secrets, that I think falls in a quite different category. And even then, I'd like to to look at the particular statutes to see whether whether there are any uh, boundaries or, or not. There's one other feature of this statute, which we haven't talked about so far that I'd like to mention, yeah. and that is there is no judicial review of the president's determination as to national security or what remedies he's going to do. Yeah. As long as the order is directed toward imports, the president can do anything he wants. This is a result of the Justice Department's interpretation and the Supreme Court in a couple of cases from the 1990s made it clear that when a statute delegates to the president the power to make these kind of determinations. There is no judicial review of his exercise of discretion. So in the case of the peanut butter, when the government was asked about peanut butter, the government said, I don't know whether it's within the statute, but all I know is that the court could not review that determination. Now, if the, if the court can't review those determinations, how did you wind up in court? We are challenging the constitutionality of the basic statute, and Got even it. the government concedes that we have the right to be in court on that. Indeed, that's part of our claim is we're not challenging the constitutionality or not objecting to what the president did specifically, we're saying that the Congress in enacting this statute gave the president far too much power and that that's the basis of our claim here. Yeah. Now, as you bring this claim, you're bringing it again under the intelligible principle standard. So if I understand it correctly, you're working within sort of the bounds of existing precedent. At the same time, there seems to be in the Supreme Court some interest in rethinking that standard either in keeping the intelligible principle standard but making it more rigorous, or perhaps in jettisoning the standard altogether and thinking about a new one. You mentioned the Gundy case involving registration of of sexual offenders, the case where the attorney general had basically open-ended authority to decide whether or not to make certain provisions retroactive. And in that case, was it Justice Kagan, I guess, who read the majority? She said, there's enough in the statute you pull it all together to limit the attorney general's discretion. But Justice Gorsuch dissented. He said this is, he dissented from the court's ultimate decision, but also said there's a fundamental problem with the doctrine as a whole. And the fact that Gorsuch raised those concerns was not a great surprise. These were concerns he had raised on the Tenth Circuit. And the fact that Justice Thomas joined him in that dissent wasn't a surprise. He's been wary of the intelligible principle standard since 2001 in the Whitman case, and he's issued some opinions along the way reiterating those concerns. What was a surprise was that the Chief Justice joined that opinion. The Chief Justice completely joined Gorsuch's opinion, voicing concerns about the intelligible principle standard and calling for a reform of that doctrine. Justice Alito didn't join the opinion. He wrote separately. He concurred with the judgment upholding the statute, but said in a future case, it might be worth returning to this doctrine. And finally, there's Justice Kavanaugh. He didn't have an opinion at all because he wasn't confirmed to the Supreme Court until, I guess, a week after Gundy was argued. Yeah, the strange thing, of course, is that they could have re-argued Gundy with him. 
either in that term or this term, but the court decided not to do it. I think maybe because I think Gundy was a very odd case in, yeah. in our delegation spectrum. It really is an abdication case rather than a case in which Congress is trying to deal, as it is in most of these cases, with a problem that it knows is going to be ongoing. Yeah. It's going to be fact-specific. It's going to, in many cases, involve scientific, economic, and other kinds of evidence that it cannot gather and continue to gather. And the question in that kind of situation, and I would put 232 in that general category, certainly different from Gundy, the court, I think, decided that it was not going to take on that broader question in the Gundy case, which didn't really raise that much more difficult question. Right. And I think that's probably why Alito didn't join, even if he, who knows what Alito thinks on the merits of non-delegation, but even if he were sympathetic to Gorsuch's, you know, analysis, he still might not want to join it in that case where the statute was just sort of one of a kind. And, And in the end, Justice Kagan did not say there was no delegation doctrine. She said, if you read the statute as broadly as Justice Gorsuch and the defendants in -hmm. that case read the statute, then there would be a delegation question. But she read it to limit the president's ability to defer, including the prior convictions, only on grounds of feasibility. And one can argue with her about whether that's a fair reading of the statute and whether it's inconsistent with the position the government took in prior cases. But those are not matters of constitutional significance. For that reason, Gundy was not a good case to basically rethink the the argument. But what it was important is that even in that context, three justices at least indicated their willingness. And now Justice Kavanaugh, in a dissent from a similar case to Gundy, said, he didn't think that that issue should be reheard, but that he would be open to, to reconsidering it in an appropriate case and suggesting some concerns that he had in particular. That's right. It was a case called Paul, and the court did not grant cert, but its denial of cert gave the opportunity for Kavanaugh to write a separate statement where he basically, it was just two pages, but he said Gorsuch raises a lot. His dissenting Gundy raised some good questions. Kavanaugh actually harkens back to an opinion by Justice Rehnquist in the early 80s in the Benzene case. In fact, Kavanaugh's dissent in the Paul case echoes and actually summarizes points he made at greater length a couple of years ago here at AEI. He gave a talk on Chief Justice Rehnquist, Ah. and he went into great detail on Rehnquist's opinion in the Benzene case. You now have this sort of flux around the doctrine. I have a two-part question. One is, when you're a litigator litigating a case, how do you make your arguments knowing that the doctrine itself might be in flux? And two... I mean, as a spectator of the court, a student of the court, what do you make of this this development? Where do you think it's headed, beyond just separate from your case? So in my case, I certainly until now, in the lower courts, I have to make the traditional argument that it's there. And I also think I can win my case on a reasonable interpretation of the existing law. That is that there have to be some boundaries. And in several places, the court has talked about the importance of the availability of judicial review as a check and the absence of judicial review as an indication that there are no boundaries. Because after all, why have judicial review if there's nothing to to be reviewed? And so that's the argument I'm going to make. I think that I can win the case without having a rethinking of the entire delegation doctrine. And my concern when I get to the Supreme Court is that both a number of the justices and I do not want to destroy the administrative state. 
I want to want to keep cases like Whitman involving the Clean Air Act there and available that we cannot have any sort of sensible regulation of our economy and our safety and environment unless we have some degree of delegation. And that's my view. And I, I think that the, a number of the justices will be concerned. And I think the chief justice would, would fall into that category that not to, to destroy the administrative state along the way. If asked, I would not embrace everything that Justice Gorsuch said, among other things, because a lot of it's not applicable to our case, and urge the court to, to at least take the first step if it views this as taking the first step, first step in the sense that since 1935, the court has said yes every time, and it's time to say no yeah. to this delegation. Now, I, I, I'm conservative and of, of temperament, not just politically, and I'm against destroying anything or destroying most things. I wouldn't say I want to destroy the administrative state, but obviously I've been a critic of a lot of, of it. And that, you and know, I have had many, many discussions over the years about these things. I see a lot of the problems with the modern administrative state as flowing directly from non-delegation and ways in which the court should fix. You, you made a point earlier, sort of on a somewhat different point, we were talking about, you were talking about the steel tariffs and you said companies, they want to plan for the long run. And this tariff might not be a long-run tariff. Another administration, whether in a year or five years or someday. Or this president. Yeah, or, or this president could change. That's right, that's right. Or this president could change it. And so it doesn't, it doesn't really do anything to help long-term planning. One of the problems of, of the modern delegation era, as I see it, is that it makes it impossible for regulated communities, whether it's industry, individuals, to plan their lives. If the executive branch has such, or agencies and independent agencies have such broad discretion and pol major policies can change without the sort of slow, deliberative legislative process. It means that we can have wild fluctuations in policy back and forth. One phrase that I've been thinking a lot about and Tal and I have been discussing a lot in, in the last year or so has been what the framers called steady administration, right? Over and over again, you see Hamilton and Madison talking about combining both energy and stability. But Hamilton especially focused on steady administration, the kind of administration that people can plan their lives around for the long run. It's one of the reasons why we have a, a four-year term for the presidency and not sort of a prime ministership that can change from moment to moment. Hamilton was worried about wild swings back and forth in policy. I guess where I'm headed with this is I worry that the modern non-delegation doctrine exacerbates that problem so that people can't live their lives or make long-term economic plans or other plans because the next presidential election might, with just a stroke of a pen, create vast you know, shifts in policy. Well, we certainly proved that vast shifts in policy can take place as a result of the 2016 election. Yeah. But I would say two things in response to that. First, many of the changes in policy are results of changes in the rules, like the EPA rules. Yeah. And to change a rule these days is not so easy. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort. And so wild swings that way. Second- But, it, but not to interrupt, but let me yeah, interrupt. interrupt. Um, <laughs> you're, the, you're the boss. Can, no, you're, you're, you're our guest. But sure, it takes some effort. It might take three years and a notice and comment process and judicial review. But it still is done more or less unilaterally through, an, say, for environmental regulations through the EPA, where you don't have the same- you have some kind of del deliberation, but certainly not the sort of checks and balances of a legislative process. So there's two things I say about that. Yeah. Number one, there's judicial review. And second, uh, the Supreme Court in the 
airbags case, motor vehicle. Uh, yeah, State Farm. Yeah. Sa- State Farm said quite clearly that administrations can change their mind, but they have to give a good reason for doing so. Third, industry actually has something to say about these things. And yes, we would have preferred a less restrictive rule back then, but we've got this rule in place now and let's just go forward with it and, and not worry so not worry about turning back the clock to correct things that might have been wrong, but we're, we've made our investments, we've made our plans and instability is worse for them than it is necessarily getting the best plan. I mean, you see this now in the industry's refusal to go to go along with the Trump cutbacks yeah. on on air quality right. and miles per gallon. So yes, there can be can be swings, but you know, the problems change and solutions change and people get different ideas about where the balance should be struck. So I would say yes, there can be changes, wild swings less so that than than you might seem on on the surface. And remember, the president Depending on the nature of the delegation, the president has a lot to go to go through. And if you talk about changing the statutes, which can always be done, if you've got two houses plus the president and perhaps the complete end of the filibuster, which may be the next thing that happens in, in, in the Senate. Maybe. Yeah, we, we've gone a little longer than usual, but once you get me started on non-delegation, uh, I'll stop. I have two questions left for you. One is just on the work of a judge here. I mentioned that Justice Kavanaugh, once upon a time, talked about non-delegation in an AEI speech. Another Supreme Court justice spent a lot of time talking about non-delegation here at AEI. Many, many years ago, Justice Scalia, before he was even Judge Scalia, he was a lowly think tank scholar and law professor. And he wrote here at AEI, at a magazine that used to be here called Regulation. And he wrote a paper called A Note on the Benzene Case. And he worried about, he, he observed what the court might be doing on non-delegation in the early 80s. And he was worried about the court doing too much. He said, of course, non-delegation is a, is a fundamental constitutional importance, but litigants are asking judges to draw lines that are not easy to draw between what is a delegation that's extremely broad but not unconstitutional and a delegation that goes a little further and becomes an unconstitutional delegation of power. Scalia joked that maybe it'd be good for the Supreme Court to just strike down a statute every once in a while just to keep Congress on its toes. <laughs> but he was very worried because, as, as with so much of his career, he was worried most of all about standardless decision-making by judges, the kind of thing that he saw in the Warren Court. You'd probably disagree with his assessment of the Warren Court, but that's what he was reacting to. And a lot of conservative judges still worry about that. And so how would you reassure these conservative judges that when they enforce the non-delegation doctrine, they're not just doing standardless judicial decision-making? And, and for them, they might say the intelligible principle standard, it's a standard, but it's not spelled out in the Constitution. They're looking for a, a rule that's written into the Constitution. My word of the day is boundaries. Yeah. That there has to be some boundary. There has to be something that the president cannot do under this statute. And if the president or the Congress cannot identify something that a court would say or everybody would say, regardless of whether it's in a court or not, the president can't do that, then there are no boundaries and there is no intelligible principle. And boundaries is a kind of a nice word. I haven't really thought about it this way. There is a boundary in the Constitution. Article 1 says law. Article 2 says execute. Yeah. They're clearly intended to be some boundaries. They didn't have them all in one part of, of, of the Constitution. Second, with regard to Justice Scalia, it's interesting because in the Mistretta case, the 
the creation of the sentencing guidelines, yeah. case I also argued, Justice Scalia dissented, yeah. said that Congress had given away too much, yeah. that there were, his put it then, major policy decisions which he gave to the which he gave to the sentencing commission. He yeah. said Congress had created a junior varsity Congress, right, right, and that was too much. On the other hand, a couple of years later in Whitman, he said the delegation to the EPA was easily yeah. sufficient. The Congress had had controlled it in a number of ways. I went back and looked at that case recently. One of the things that I had not focused on before is that the front end control was that the EPA could apply this only to pollutants that it had specifically designated in a list that was the limit. So it would only apply to that. Just as in Mistretta, you could only apply the sentencing guidelines to people who had been convicted of a federal crime. So we had boundaries. To be sure, it was not a small group of of, of categories, but those were the the boundaries. It's unclear why he dissented in Mistretta. He recognized that there were lots of restrictions. There were pages and pages of restrictions, three pages. And he said, no, no, because he thought that the, ba- the important policy choices, and I like to think that in this case, he would think, forget about the national security side, but he would think that the policy choices of remedies yeah. and, and the limitless number of tariffs that could be imposed in any amount without regard to which country was, was being given the tariffs, he would think that those were policy choices of the kind that Congress ought to make. Now, the other difference with the sentencing guidelines case, with the sentencing guidelines, is that the Sentencing Commission, it wasn't enforcing the law, right? It was Its only job was to come up with the guidelines. And that's why Scalia called it a junior varsity Congress. It was a body that made law and did nothing else. Yes. Whereas with, and actually I cheated, I, I, was gonna, I had a quote in case I needed, I won't read it, but there's this great quote in Mistretta where Scalia says, in execution or in judicial decision-making, there's always going to be some discretionary judgment and therefore policy-making. Yes. And so for Scalia, one of the ways that he could distinguish, say, the Sentencing Commission from the EPA or those statutes from the EPA statutes was that the EPA's discretionary judgments were, were made in the course of, ad, of administering and executing the law. But I, I'm not so sure that I find that distinction yeah. so strong. After all, the delegation doctrine is about what Congress did, yeah. not what the, what the executive branch is, is doing. True. And you know, we have other, other cases like in OSHA, for example. The OSHA statute involves, OSHA is not enforcing that. That's done before the commission, although it can bring, bring cases. Uh, it writes a standard. So I'm not sure that I would find that distinction there. But the guts of his opinion was that Congress had given too many big policy choices to the commission. If I can put on my voice of the people hat for, yeah. for a second. Okay, put it on. And, and I, I think many of our listeners are, are probably thinking, there's something more fundamental going on here than just this problem of a, of a doctrine, of a non-delegation doctrine, that actually that is the constitutional manifestation of vague and overly broad laws. And I wanted to, to ask if, if there's a line of argument there saying we don't even need to rely on this doctrine. We can just say that these laws should be void for vagueness or should be deemed overly broad because the the trigger in particular that allows the president to act for any number of reasons in the most broad and vague terms of national security, that seems like a clear violation of what legislation is meant to be. And Gorsuch, when he's raised issues of void for vagueness, he often talks in terms of due process. Yes, fairness, notice to individuals. So the void for vagueness doctrine comes up 
in the context of an enforcement proceeding against an individual. The argument there is the individual doesn't know what the court is is expecting of him, what what the Justice Department is expecting of him or her. The delegation doctrine arises at an earlier stage. So when this case got to court, if you imported a steel product, you wouldn't have a void for vagueness concept because it's perfectly clear that you have to pay the 25% tariff. Mm -hmm. And so they are different in that sense. But the root problem is the same. It's that Congress is passing off to somebody else. In that case, either the, the attorney general to decide how the law is going to be enforced, against whom it's going to be enforced, or to the courts to decide whether the person's conduct comes within the statute. But in those cases, the principal problem is is one of congressional abdication. They didn't want to deal with it, or they wanted to deal with it in a very broad statement that doesn't tell anybody what they may and may not do. So I would say the problems are first cousins. Indeed, we cite a couple of Gorsuch's void for vagueness opinions, which are joined by other members of the court as, as a first cousin. And there's a footnote in one of the cases and Justice Thomas also concurs in one of the cases saying, this is the first cousin of the delegation doctrine. There's what, Sessions versus DeMaia? Yes. And I can't remember the other, the other one. Yes, I don't remember recent. the other one. Either. Yes. And then one last question. Another famous case that you litigated in the 80s is called INS v. Chadha. It wasn't about non-delegation, but it was about, it was in a way the reverse. Here you, yes. didn't have, you didn't have Congress giving away its legislative power. You had Congress staking a claim of the president's executive power. Right. Basically giving, was it one house of Congress? In that case, it was one house. A veto over the attorney general's determinations over whether or not to remove an immigrant from the United States. Right. And I don't want, without getting too far into the case, because we're a little long on time, it just struck me as I was thinking, as I was thinking about your background in the context of this discussion, that was a case where you were arguing in favor of, of constitutional structure and reinvigoration of structure in defense of, of, of an immigrant. And the, the coincidence being that Gorsuch and so many of his opinions on non-delegation when he was on the Tenth Circuit, or even on the Supreme Court, he's had some opinions on what's called void for vagueness, yes. which is sort of the cousin of non-delegation. It is. It had to do with immigrants. And it just seems to me that those cases, in your case, illustrate the ways in which, you know, sometimes we talk about these structural constitutional issues and sort of big picture or big industry, but they really do come down in many cases to just how individuals live their lives Absolutely. and how they try to make plans for their lives in a place where the law that governs them could shift very, very quickly by just the stroke of a pen, the attorney general's pen. Well, in the case of Chadha, uh, the result of a, of a quixotic decision yeah. by the House of Representatives, most of your listeners will not remember the facts of this case, but the House had a year and a half to, to veto people who had been approved by the Immigration and Naturalization Service to remain in this country. Yeah. There were 340 people on the list and six of them for no reason other than what a subcommittee chairman said, we think they don't qualify. They were required to stay in this country if the veto had not been, been overturned. So in that case, and I think the same issue I raise here, but a different way, is excessive power in one branch. In that case, it was defective because the Congress was executing the laws, carrying them out, and not just writing them. And in, in this case, the, the Congress has given the power to the president to impose tariffs. And, and I, I'm in favor of separation of powers. I want there to be boundaries and for the courts to assure that there are some policing of those boundaries. And that's what I think is at issue here. I'm fortunate in my positions that 
I'm not institutionally required to defend the presidency or the Congress and yeah. that I can go after both or in some cases the court. If I think the court has been given too much power, as I argued in Mistretta, that the court should, we should not have judges sitting on sentencing commissions. Yeah. Well, so coming down in favor of separation of powers, Tall, that sounds good to me. Does it sound good to you? I, I'm okay with that. Well, let's, uh, let's end on that, on that cheery note. Alan Morrison, thank you so much Pleasure. for joining us. Give me the opportunity to talk about these very important issues. Well, no, thank you. And, and thanks to all of our listeners. We hope you'll join us again for the next episode of Unprecedental. I might raise my voice. Ah, yeah. All good. I mean, we all get excited sometimes. Well, so Not as excited as I get about delegation. Good. <laughs> <laughs>